Ephesians 6, 10 through 20 would rattle and even disturb us from our sleep. So we're going to spend four weeks, not, we're not going to do this entire par- paragraph today, uh, we're going to actually spend four weeks in this paragraph considering what is often called spiritual warfare. And if I may be honest with you, just from a personal note, I'm overwhelmed by this text. It's, uh, I'm weary because of it. To, to labor over a text like this, to, to jump into the deep end of this topic is heavy. Uh, it beats you up a little bit, to be honest with you. Um, and so I come to you uh, needy and, and a bit weak, but I trust that God's word is much more powerful than my tongue. Uh, and so please pray with me as we throughout this entire uh, sermon. Uh, but I needed to hear it. I needed to study it. I needed to react to it. And frankly, I needed to repent because of it. Um, we need this. We need this text. And I'm, I'm excited. I'm thankful. At the end of the day, I'm so thankful for what it has shown me and what it's going to show us. Two mistakes can be made here, and they're easy. Number one is that we never talk about this kind of stuff. Right? We just say, awkward, nope, not going to do that. Or the other extreme is to obsess over it, to always talk about it, to be consumed by it. You know, while talk of Satan, because that's what we're going to talk about today, to talk of Satan and to talk about demons, that can often go haywire. But to never talk about Satan and demons is also just as unhelpful. So we're going to try to find that balance this morning and see what this text tells us. This morning is going to be more of an overview because we're spending four Sundays here. I'm going to paint a big picture for us that will then whittle its way down over the next three Sundays. Um, And so I want to start with a couple foundations. You see this in your your notes. We have a lot of notes this morning. We'll be going quickly. Uh, But I want to start with a couple foundations that set up this morning and really set up this entire series. So number one, we have to believe this in order to make sense of this text. Number one, the Christian life is one of trials and vulnerability. The Christian life is one of trials and vulnerability. The way of Christ is one of hardship, it's one of pain, it's one of suffering, and it's one of difficulty. Unless Jesus tells us this in the Gospel of John, unless a disciple imitates his master's determination, that disciple will not make it in this life. That's scary to think about. That when God puts you on the narrow path, you will often, you ever done this? You you will often lay your head down at night thinking, I am just too tired to do it again tomorrow. You ever felt that way? That's because the Christian life is one of trials and vulnerability. Because as the hymn that many of us grew up singing, says, this life is full of dangers, toils, and who knows it? Snares, right? Dangers, toils, and snares. This this text says that there are going to be temptations that can derail you. That there are people in your life that will ruin you if you let them. And that there are circumstances that endanger your life, your spiritual life. Do we believe that? Do we actually believe that, that we look at the world as one ongoing snare? That's what this text assumes. Okay, so that's the first foundation. The second one is this, and it's bigger. God is sovereign over our trials and vulnerabilities. 
God is sovereign over our trials and vulnerability. So before we move into this text, we must cling to how the Bible describes God as sovereign. Everything and everyone are completely dependent upon the decrees of God. Now this is deep. This is, this is like deep, deep waters, very mysterious. I certainly don't understand it all the time. But if we don't believe this, I think our faith will begin to unravel that nothing happens outside of God's mysterious plan. So what does that mean? Spiritual warfare, the existence of Satan, all of it is within the will of God. Within his plan, God permits and he even ordains spiritual warfare. Therefore, God is masterfully using everything, and I mean everything in our lives, to mold us into images of Christ. Ultimately, spiritual warfare's purpose is to display God's glory. We need to believe that together, church. It's a big thing to believe. But spiritual warfare is to declare the greatness of God, because in the midst of it, when God wins, we see his glory blasted. And we need to remember that. And spiritual warfare, we need to remember this, that if we're in the hand of God, spiritual warfare will make us look more like him because of it. That spiritual warfare will make you look more like Christ. It is underneath the sovereignty and power of God. And we need to believe that as a foundation for everything we're about to talk about. Because if you don't have that foundation, this text can rip you right off too. It can send you on trails that you don't need to go. And so with those two things in mind, let's jump in. Let's look to verse 11 first, and we'll get back to verse 10. Look straight to verse 11. It says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Now, my first observation in this text is one of repetition. Look at that verb again. Put on the whole armor of God. Now, think with me. Where have we heard that before? To put on. Put on what? Help me. Put on Christ, Romans 13. Where else have we heard that? In Ephesians chapter 4. Huh? Put on the new man. Put on the new man. Put on the new self, the new life. Depends on how your, your Bible translates. That's exactly right. Now, so this isn't the first time we've actually seen Paul use this phrase to put on. So it, in Ephesians 4, 24, it says to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So let's combine these. Twice we're commanded to put on. Chapter 4 says put on the new self. What is that an attack on? The flesh, the old man. All right, and then now we have chapter 6, put on the whole armor of God. That's an attack on Satan and his armies. Same verb, different opponents. What does that teach us? What am, what am I going through this for? We see this in your notes as well. There are two great enemies in your life. You and Satan. There are two great enemies in my life, me and Satan. The first immediate and present, ever-present enemy in your life and my life is our own flesh. I'm not mismaking this up. Paul says this in Galatians chapter 5, a stark sentence. He says, the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For they are opposed to each other. To keep you, believer, 
to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. So what does that mean? That means that nothing inside you wants to obey Christ. That your flesh seeks to oppose everything that God desires for your life. That is why we must continually be putting on the new man. Some weeks this is stronger than others and you feel it in different ways, but we wake up every day wearing the old man. We wake up selfish. We wake up irritable. We wake up despairing. We wake up in this evil age. Therefore, there must be a daily battle to kill the old man. But now, in Ephesians chapter 6, we find that the flesh is not the only enemy that we have. And we find that the flesh doesn't work alone. Not only am I my own worst enemy, I have an evil help from an evil enemy. And so you see this in your notes, that the devil is the great companion to your flesh. The devil is the great companion to your flesh. Not only do I wake up wearing the old man, I also wake up vulnerable to, this, to Satan's schemes. And my prayer this week, my prayer again and again, I know I'm saying this a lot, my prayer this week is that we would see the urgency of this, that we feel it. And now it makes sense. Do you see why? Do you see why life feels like it does when you walk in obedience to Christ? Because we have these two enemies that are saying, stop that. Don't do that. Each one of us has an inward traitor and an outward kamikaze seeking to kill or prevent our perseverance to Christ. And to speak candidly, what a match made in hell. Those two together in our lives are dangerous. But we tackled the flesh in chapter 4. Let's tackle this idea of Satan in chapter 6. We need a little bit more clarity. Who are we talking about here? And a lot of people define this guy in a lot of different ways. So we need to really zone in who is the devil and what does he do? And when we survey the Bible, this is why it's been hard for me this week. When you survey the Bible, it's frankly speaking, it's a haunting conclusion. We have an enemy who is a monster. He's a horrible, awful monster called Satan, and, and, he, and he's serious. And he is capable of doing immeasurable damage to the life of a believer. Let's get more specific. I'm going to rattle off five things here, and we're going to go real quick. Number one, who, do we, who is this guy? The devil is an angel. Otherwise, we can call that a supernatural spirit. The devil is an angel created by God who rebelled against God and who now hates God. I can't believe you're a visitor. You're like, what in the world? I know, I know. But the devil is an angel. This is the truth of God's word. The devil is an angel. He is a supernatural spirit who was created by God, Colossians chapter 1, rebelled against God of Isaiah 14, and now hates God, Ezekiel 28. Number two, the devil is the powerful but limited ruler of the earth. The devil is the powerful but limited ruler of the earth. Look at how striking 1 John chapter 5, verse 19 is. Chapter 1 John 5, 19 says this, that we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one, John? 
2 Corinthians chapter 4 just reinforces that. Paul's talking about how if, even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world, he calls him. The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. So the very title that Paul gives in 2 Corinthians 4 is quite telling. He is the God of this world. He is the prince of the power of the air, Ephesians 2, verse 2. And it's hard to understand, but it is unavoidable. When we study the New Testament, the devil has been given power by God to rule this fallen world. He's not confined to one part of the world, but he is, as Job chapter 1 says, walking to and fro on the earth. But even still, what we can know is that this power is not ultimate. It is certainly not sovereign. God, praise God, has Satan on a leash. But as we look up and look out and look around and we look in the text, we realize that this leash is kind of long sometimes. God in his sovereign goodness and plan has given Satan leeway. And we need to believe that. We need to understand that if we want to make sense of spiritual warfare. Okay? So that's number two. Number three, we're going to spend a little bit more time on this one. The devil is a liar. The devil is a liar. He tempts with a T. And he accuses. He's a tempter and an accuser. The greatest description we have of Satan is from Jesus himself. John chapter 8. Right? Satan is the father of lies. He is the origin of lies. Everything about him, every time he speaks out of his own character, Jesus says, is all about falsehood. He will take what is false and try to convince you that it's true. He will, take you, he will take what is true, and he will try to convince you that it's false. And he does it to ruin us. Satan wants what's worst for you. That is, by the way, the definition of hatred. Satan hates you. He hates me. And if he could, he would send every unbeliever to the grave right now. He doesn't have the power of life and death. And Christian... If you're a believer, listen in. Satan wants to strip you of your faith. He wants to distract you. He wants your despair. He wants your disbelief. He wants your lust. He wants your cravings. He wants your death. The halls of hell are never full enough for Satan. And so he prowls, 1 Peter 8. He's cunning. He's crafty. His attacks, think about this. His attacks are both individual, you, and corporate, us. They're both singular and systemic. He is behind many of your individual weaknesses, and he is behind worldwide wickedness. He wants you and he wants us. He wants the Christian and he wants the church. You ever wonder why your marriage goes through cycles up and then down, up and then down, up and then down. Is that your flesh? Of course it is. But the enemy fuels that. He gets excited about that. And he wants to ruin your marriage. Maybe you're not married. Maybe you want to be married. 
and you're lonely. Is some of that loneliness coming from your own flesh? Absolutely. But does the devil bring a, slam, a sledgehammer and crush you in your loneliness? You better believe it. He is trying to tempt us. He is trying to ruin us. And he will reinforce any weakness that we might have. Satan will convince you. He's convinced me of this. My flesh. He'll convince us that a full calendar should be the measure of importance and influence. He'll convince you to be so busy doing the king's work that you forget the very look of the king's face. He'll convince you that luxury is, is compatible with lordship. He'll convince you that the Lord wants your temporal luxury. He'll whisper into the ears of South Walton and say that fine dining and fine living is compatible with the son of man who had no place to lay his head. He will do these things and he'll slip under. We won't even see it. He'll introduce confusing doctrine. He'll use false teachers to present half-truths, to present a half-Jesus, to convince you that God is for your earthly glory and not his eternal fame. He'll do anything to get you away from the Bible. He'll do anything for your sword to get rusty. Are you lacking power in your life because the word of God is bouncing off of your busyness? Beware, brothers and sisters, we wrestle not against flesh and blood but against rulers, authorities, he, he, cosmic powers. What? Evil spirits of this age. And let me mention this. Satan also accuses. That's what his name means, accuser. He causes us to doubt in the promises of God. So not only does your flesh often forget, my flesh forgets the gospel almost on a daily basis, your forgetfulness is going to be met by Satan. And then he's going to condemn you for being forgetful. Do you see what he's able to do? He wants you to doubt the victory of Christ in your life. He wants you, thankful for Drew for this, he wants you to elevate the power of your sin over the accomplished work of the cross. He wants you to believe that your sin is more powerful than grace. What a lie. And what an accuser. Are you, are you shaming yourself this week because you don't believe that that cross is wherever the cross, there it is, it's final, that it's done, that it's paid for? Your flesh is going to do that and Satan's going to come up right behind your flesh and say, come on, no way. Not you, not you. Satan is the great fossil digger. He will go back into your past and he will find a fossil of your previous life. He will find one of your mistakes. He will find your embarrassing rebellion against God and he will try to hold you accountable to those fossils, to those former ways. And these accusations are his strategy to, for us to doubt the sufficiency of Jesus. These are his schemes. This is who he is. And the only thing I can say is, are we awake? Are we awake to that? Do we actually believe that? That there is an enemy here seeking to devour. You know what that word means? It's freaky to think about. <laughs> but the Bible uses it, not me. To devour something is to eat it. He wants to eat us. 
And that's real. Scripture. Good news is coming. Fourth, fourth, the devil has help. The devil has help. Is the devil omnipresent? Can he be in all places at all times? Ready? No. No. He cannot. Now, can he go really quickly? I think he can travel fast, yeah. I think so. Uh, but you see this list in verse 12, don't you? It says we don't wrestle, which that's such a good word. You know what that word means? It means like really close quarters. So that we do not wrestle it means that you're in the same room with somebody and you're trying to get out of the door. Who can get out of the door first? That's the kind of wrestling match he's talking about. It's not a wrestling match in the next like, county. He's right here. He's right next to you. That's how intense and close, intimate the wrestling is. But who are we wrestling against? Not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, authorities, cosmic powers, spiritual forces. For now, all we need to say is this. This this can go in a a direction I don't want to go, per se. But all we need to highlight is this, that the devil is not alone in his schemes. Rather, he has countless helpers, other fallen angels who aid him in his tasks. These are demons. They are cosmic and they are powerful. They have limited but legitimate spiritual jurisdiction on the earth. And so it's important for us to believe these things. It's important for us to believe in demons. They're all over scripture and they are right here in this verse, verse 12, They are able to contribute to Satan's schemes. They also will tempt you and accuse you. Okay, so fifth and final thing that we need to know about Satan. The devil tempts us to sin, but he cannot make us sin. The devil tempts us to sin, yes, but he cannot make us sin. For example, and one of the best books in the Bible to go about a theology of Satan would be Job, right? To go to Job and see what's going on there. But in the story of Job, we see that he could only tempt Job to curse God. He could not make him curse God. He was trying to do everything he could to force it, but he could not do it. He did not have the power to force Job to curse God. The same is true of us. Satan cannot make you sin. Just here recently, I was uh, disciplining one of my sons for some behavior. And, you know, it was outside, so we were running around the corner of the house, and I was like, hey, buddy, do that and with like I mean just perfect execution he's like but dad 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 it wasn't me Satan made me do it I I just I I didn't keep it together I busted out laughing like oh my gosh you clever little kid but you're wrong you did it and here comes my wrath no I'm kidding I'm kidding (laughs) kidding but if we're uh, you know I know some of you yeah sorry yes anyway Never mind. Um, If we're not careful, we do that too. We do that too. Sometimes we blame Satan when really it's just an unbridled, unchecked flesh. You love sin. In your own state, without Christ, you love sin. I do too. And unless Christ buys me, unless he makes me new, I'm always going to choose sin. So never blame Satan for your sin. God didn't. Who did he curse? Adam and Eve. They were responsible, and so are we. 
We need to be careful about that. But what we can know is that this enemy, Satan, will work in tandem with our flesh to do everything that he can, and his, all of his demons, it's unbelievable to, to even consider, uh, that they're going to do everything they can to inflict damage upon the church. And if we're not careful, if we're not intentional, and if we're not aware, he will devour. He will devour. So, so what are we to do? That's a bleak picture. What are we to do about all this? How should Christians respond to this? Well, Paul tells us in verse 11, we already read it, to put on the whole armor of God. Then he says it again in verse 13, almost the same thing. Take up the whole armor of God. So telling us once wasn't enough. A second reminder was necessary. And what is the essence of that message? What does it mean to take on the whole armor or take up the whole armor of God? Well, it starts with believing this. Life is war. Life, your life, you are in a war zone. So don't live your life with any other lens other than this spiritual warfare. Maintaining your faith is going to require armor. We have to have the armor, meaning it's going to be a fight. This is why Paul says at the very end of his life, I have fought this fight. And Timothy, fight the good fight of faith. But here's the problem. What did we just learn? It's a fight that I can't win. Not by myself. Once you realize who Satan is, you realize it's a war that exceeds your strength and skill. It's a war that's beyond human capacity. Therefore, we need a very specific armor. We need a protection. It has to be a divine armor. We need a very specific set of weapons. They have to be divine weapons. And what a God we serve. What a God that equips us for the battle. Notice that the armor that he provides isn't lacking anything. What does he call it? He doesn't call it the armor of God. He calls it the whole armor. The, the full armor, the complete armor. You know what the, the, the Greek word is? All, all armor. You can't put on this armor without putting all of it on. And in the coming weeks, we're going to look into the many faces of the prism called God's whole armor. But even before we get there, before we kind of look at what all these specific weapons or pieces are, we must understand the simple and, and really just the big, broad picture of Paul's metaphor. What is this whole armor of God? Well, simply speaking, it is the Lord himself. The armor, the whole armor of God is God. Let me show you what I mean. Look at verse 10. It says, finally, there's one thing I can tell you. There's the last thing I have to say is, be strong, and there's that phrase, in the Lord. To be in the Lord is to be united to Jesus Christ. There's a union, and in the sense You'll see this in your notes. I think this is really the big picture statement of what Paul's saying in general of all of this paragraph is stand firm in your union with Jesus Christ. You want to know how to fight every single battle and fight the worst enemy that you could ever imagine? Stand firm that the gospel is effective in your life. You must put on the Lord Jesus Christ, Romans 13 verse 12. See, from a wide angle lens, Paul is saying that Jesus Christ is my armor with many weapons that we'll get to see. So that means that we must not walk into this world 
without having bathed ourselves into the, into the gospel of Jesus Christ. Too many times, too many times, I'm, it's, it, I was thinking about it this week, how many days in a row, by, I, I mean, having a quiet time, really seeking God's face, and then by the time I even get to walk out the door, how things can change rapidly. Too many times we walk outside the king's walls, under siege, and with no armor on. We leave the gospel behind. No wonder Paul leaves this for last. No wonder this is his finale. We are meager. We're vulnerable. Our only hope for endurance in this weary life, our only hope for victory in a vulnerable life is to wear the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ as a jacket, as, a, as, a, as an armor that, can, that nothing can penetrate. That's where it starts. Left to ourselves, we'll get buried. We'll get buried by the sly and soothing temptations of Satan and his demons. Unless we have put on the Lord Jesus Christ, we will wake up on the other side of death, regretting a temporary comfort that turned into an eternal misery. We have to be careful. We have to be super aware now, what else does this tell us? This is where it gets really good and really exciting. This is where Paul starts it. He tells us this. This is in your notes. I'm rephrasing. Power over Satan hinges upon the empty grave. This is what we celebrate last week. It's what we celebrate every week. Power over Satan hinges upon the empty grave. This is why Paul includes that phrase after. He says, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might or in the power of his might. Now that's a phrase we've heard before. It's been a little while, but that is a phrase we heard. And I actually want you to go there because it's so important. Go back to Ephesians chapter 1 and look at what Paul prays. So this is, not only is this Paul's exhortation in chapter 6, it's also his prayer in chapter 1. So you see in verse 16, that he's praying for them constantly, that the Lord, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having your, the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which you have been called, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance, and then pay attention right here, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working, and here's the literal translation, of the strength of his might. Same exact words in both places. And where did, it, where did he work this might? That he worked in Christ, verse 20, when he raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Far above, look at this, every rule, every authority, every power, every dominion and above every name that is named not only in this age but also in the one to come and he put all things under Christ's feet and gave him as head over all things to the church which is his body the fullness of him who fills all in all do you see what Paul just did in chapter one and in chapter six his beginning prayer and his it is final exhortation he says that the resurrection is the dagger to the enemy is he great is he powerful? Is he scary? Sure. But the empty grave is my hope. The empty grave is my rest. And listen, the empty grave is my victory. I have won in Christ. That's an amen. Yes, we need it. We have to have an empty grave. And so now, listen, listen, listen. It is the same power 
that same victory with which Christians are commanded to clothe themselves. Are you clothed daily in what Christ has already done for you? Christian, you are commanded by God to be clothed, to put on the resurrected, reigning, and victorious Christ today. Put on Jesus today. And when you do, though life, this is a guarantee, is weary and vulnerable, and though you will suffer attacks by a horrendous enemy, you are the victor. You can overcome Satan and his schemes. You will defeat him. There is a fight for your soul, but praise God, that battle, that fight has already been won. And this is what's so fun. This is why Paul does not say, put on the whole armor of God so that you might be able to win. No, no. That, that's already done. That's already been handled. That's a, that's a fact. The empty grave is proof that the victory is ours in Christ. And so what is our goal? Put on the whole armor of God that you might be able to stand. A sta to stand is a victorious posture. And things will come at you absolutely. But you have already won in Jesus Christ. The goal is not victory. The goal is to stand, to resist, as verse 13 says, to endure. We are already winners in Christ, and now we wait. Now we stand. So my brothers and sisters, when we put all this together, the thing that I want to start the next four Sundays thinking about is the realization, this realization. Wake up. Wake up. Resist Satan in the power of the gospel. Wake up. Are we slothful? Have we forgotten? This area will do this. Does it does it to me all the time. We will snooze. Wake up. Resist Satan in the power of the gospel. So are we fighting? And are the or are the subtle tactics of Satan elevating our flesh? Are they quenching the Spirit's work in our lives? Where are you right now, personally? Where are you in this understanding? And let me challenge you briefly with these things. Number one, walking out the door, don't rely on your own power. Do not rely on your own power. If there's any foundation that this text assumes, it's one of our helplessness. That song that we sing on occasion is so helpful. God, I need you. Oh, I need you. What does it say? Every hour I need you. And then what does it say? You're my one defense, my righteousness. Oh, think about that. That's a, that's a warfare song. God, I need you at 11. God, I, I didn't think this would happen, but I need you at 12. You ever done that? You had an incredible time with the Lord at like 6. And then by like 10.30, you're about to over the cliff. Every hour I need you, God. Every hour because right when those defenses fall, the arrows fly. Keep the wall up. We have to remember that we are not able on our own. This is what I love about the Puritans. If you can get over some archaic language, they are gorgeous. They're so important. They were masters of self-skepticism. They knew not only about the schemes of Satan, but they also knew the schemes of their own heart. Never assume, brother and sister, never assume that you're strong enough in temptation. Never. Never assume that you can overcome that enticing jewel. 
distrust yourself. That sounds, that doesn't sound, that doesn't feel good. I know it doesn't feel good. It feels harsh. I know. But we cannot trust ourselves. If we could, Christ dies for no reason. He died because we can't trust ourselves. Okay, number two, instead of that, instead of relying on our own power, let the resurrection be your daily rudder. Let the resurrection be your daily rudder. You will drift, I will drift every day if we don't rehearse the gospel's power in our lives. I do this all the time. I wake up funky. There's no other way to put it. You just wake up and you're not in the right state of mind. And I have to sit down and I have to believe the gospel again. And until I do, and until I get there, I sit and I wait. I will not leave until the beauty of the gospel and the beauty of Jesus Christ has saturated my life. Start your day like that. Don't start your day without speaking, believing, praying, and worshiping the Christ of the gospel. Cleave to your identity in Jesus Christ and bring that identity into every single circumstance. And third and final, this text is worthless unless you're a Christian. This text is worthless unless you're a Christian. See, Paul's hope for perseverance rises and falls whether or not you are in the Lord. That means that you have kneeled, you have knelt before him and saying, you are my king. You have, you have my life. Strength for battle in this life only comes from the Lord. If you do not know him, if he is not your Lord, you've already been swallowed up. The Bible says that those who do not believe in Jesus are blind, that they cannot see, and that is a fearful place to be. And so I plead with you to know this truth, that there is a light that can break through your darkness. There is a power that can destroy your chains, and it is the power of a crucified and risen Savior, Jesus. Will you believe in him today, that there is a holy God of the universe who transacted judgment upon you because of your sin, but then offers you a free and open invitation to turn from your sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and everything will be wiped away, eyes new, heart new, life new in the power of Jesus' name. Will you believe in him today? My prayer for us is that in this series that we will stand firm in our union with Jesus Christ and secondly today that we'll wake up my goal today was for us just to wake up to the reality of who Satan is and to resist him in the power of the gospel. Let's pray. Our communion and music teams can come up now too. Father, thank you for this word. It has me so aware of my need for you that I can't, I couldn't present something flashy or polished to my faith family this morning. I, I didn't have it. I did not have what it took. But I just beg you that the truth of your word would stand firm, that it would, it would sit into the very pockets of hearts all around this room. 